Hey everyone, I'm Alex Cantor. And I'm Lily Rosenthal. Welcome to our podcast, Hot Pastrami. We are coming to you from our favorite booth at Cantor's Deli here in LA. We're going to invite some of our friends to join us for a chat over some matzo ball soup and pastrami sandwiches. So join us for new episodes of Hot Pastrami every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon. Bye. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Jared Picard. Jared was a Wall Street guy, and uh, he and his brother were both there, and he was watching his brother sort of systematically lose all this weight. I I think it was close to like 100 pounds with a Czech practitioner, Paul Czech, who's been on the podcast. And it really just triggered a switch into Jared just to kind of go, well, why? And he started doing his own practice, which literally led him fast forward to he and his wife, Valisa, having a farm in Sonoma, the Be Here Farm in Nature, which is truly one of the only biodynamic farms in the country. It's sort of like, it's like 0% of the farms in the country are genuinely biodynamic. We just talk about, you know, being an apprentice, learning something new, following your passions, what it feels like to be healthy, to know the difference. And just his practices now, they have a family, they work together, he has a daughter, and, um, I just really respect his approach to life and living and his work ethic and just sort of his hopes for the future for all of us in our food and our farming practices. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Gabby Reese Show. It's all an experiment. Hello, Ma. I want to dive right in because I really want to get into the skincare aspect, the entrepreneurship aspect, the idea of trying to actually do great businesses. Cause I think it's very romantic to create this idea of creating a business, but uh, especially around things that are, you know, sustainable or responsible or, you know, you, cause this is where it's all moving to, but the, but then there's realities to it as well. So I want to sort of get into all those aspects, but I want to start with you, because I think, you know, listen, a lot of us are in places that um, either they're not, it's not working for us, or we know inside that it could be better. And maybe we weren't raised in an environment to understand how to do it, or we don't have access to people or friends that are in these, you know, in the changes that we think we want to make. And I think your story besides your business is, as equally as compelling because you started down one road in life and because of your brother and some other things, uh, or, you know, at least through your brother, observing your brother, you know, you, you sort of really decided to make a life change. And I even find it more fascinating that you were able to do it with your partner. So maybe you could just walk me through sort of where you were and how you were feeling about that. And what you saw that sparked this idea that maybe you could make these changes? What are the things that you implemented? And um, and then we'll we'll go from there. Great. So I mean, there's so much there. Um, this was all very personal. So the idea that there's a particular ethos woven into our business model is not exactly sort of how it came to be. It was more through the personal side. So like personally, we underwent personal transformations, which then led to a place where 
we started pursuing things we were passionate about. And the idea that we could develop a business that would allow us to just do what we were passionate about was sort of counterculture to um, just like the general sort of idea of like being a businessman and working really long hours and, and, and slaving hard and then, you know, kicking back with beer on the weekend and like letting loose or whatever. So the idea that, and, and that's sort of where I was actually. So I was in New York City and these ideas were coming to me, ideas meaning new ideas on movement or mindfulness or food quality and sourcing, excuse me, food quality and sourcing. And incorporating these things into my life, all of a sudden, there was a huge return on investment, let's say. Like I was getting a lot of positive feedback from these new things in my life. They were making me feel incredible. They were enhancing my life in sort of broad spectrum ways, like eating better made me digest better, made me feel better, made me sleep better, made me work better, made me work out better. And it was just a really positive sort of feedback loop. But they were a very small section of my day. You know, I bare, like I was at work all day. I was working on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And so uh, did, you, did you have something you wanted to add? Because yeah, I think sometimes like, okay, the running joke is right now, you know, you're in Topanga, which, you know, it's like, it's like sophisticated hippie canyon, right? Like people think that, uh, you know, oh, you, you must be from there. Well, that's, that's not really the case. You were raised on the East Coast. Right. And, you know, you, I think I, I, it feels like you did probably what you thought you were supposed to, and you end up on, the, you know, the, the floor of the exchange, which is high stress, long hours, um, and, and probably not tons of conversation about like, well, how's your mindfulness practice going or things like that? No. Do you have a voice inside of you there going, there's gotta be more to life or I'm not feeling great or what's going on? Or can you even remember what was going inside of you or were you just full go, go, go and not even really thinking about it? Well, it was the, it was initially, it was sort of like the vanity of like, I want to lose weight or, you know, it wasn't like, I want to have a holistic lifestyle. It it was, it was definitely just like, oh man, I'm, I'm looking pretty swollen. And certainly somewhere in my head, I must've known that drinking a lot of alcohol was not doing me well. And I was, you know, staying out late on weekends and sort of living a general New York city lifestyle. But um, so we alluded to it, but in case the original recording didn't mention it, I mean, what happened to my brother is he started seeing what you would call a holistic life coach, specifically a Czech practitioner. And so when my brother, after however many months or even a year, lost over a hundred pounds and sort of visually transformed from a very, very like morbidly obese person into starting to look like a very athletic person, um, I sort of just said, uh, let me get involved a little bit, you know, but I didn't really know what I was getting into. Um, why, why did he, what was hit? Did he talk, was a doctor like on him? Like you better make some changes or what probably, was- but nothing really clicked until he had, I think a similar experience. One of his friends had worked with the check, the same check practitioner and had underwent a sort of physical transformation. And he was a, one of his friends who was like a big sort of party animal type caricature of himself, you know, for about a decade of his life. And then I think found a different way of being. And my brother witnessed that. 
And then I'll just jump back to me because I think everybody probably experienced the same thing, which is that we went there looking to lose a few pounds. And then thankfully we were exposed to a very holistic approach on how to do that, uh, you know, in a sustainable way. Cause we had had the same experience as anyone of dieting and failing and, and all sorts of various other, you know, reasons why we couldn't lose weight over time, which one of them for me was like, I was eating a pint of ice cream every night. Um, so there's, you know, various reasons why we had our reasons, but, um, the working with someone was extremely helpful. And so there's so much, you know, free online resources and people like you and podcasts and, uh, videos, and then like minimal subscriptions all the way up to the idea of hiring a, a, a coach to work with you one-on-one, which I was so fortunate to have done at that time. And so that was sort of like all sorts of new ideas presented at once. Some of which, of course, I rejected outright and like had hard time understanding. But eventually over time, what happens is it's something works. You know, you're getting positive feedback from something. All of a sudden you're looking in the mirror and you're standing taller or your color of your skin is a little different than it used to be. You feel more vital. You're sharper at work, whatever it is, you start getting that positive feedback. And then when you start recognizing those positive things, you can kind of compare them to some of the negative feelings that you couldn't really notice. Cause I mean, like I was sort of a garbage disposal at that time. I was just like putting anything in and my general state of feeling and being was sort of in retrospect, sort of neutral. Um, but like uh, nowadays, if I were to, you know, eat or like if I were to go to a college reunion and sort of eat or drink indiscriminately, which I actually don't do, I actually sort of travel with my food and, you know, maybe have a, a hard cider or a glass of wine or something. But uh, like uh, if I did it, I mean, I would just, I would really feel it in a, in a I would feel sick probably for a couple of days. Um, and so it's like garbage in, garbage out is uh, like an accounting term, but sort of how I, uh, recall it is that once I started doing these positive things in my life, all of a sudden I just desperately was a- attracted to them. So when you say, okay, so for people listening, if for someone to call themselves a, a, a check practitioner, I just want to say, um, it, it's like you're, you're as close to being a doctor without going to medical school, pretty much. I mean, it is, it is a very rigorous program. Paul check is, makes it very ch- difficult to become, you know, to be considered and qualified as a Czech practitioner. These are, these are informed people. So what's strange about it is sometimes, because I've worked with them, is in certain ways, especially if let's say you're, you're sort of new to all this, all of this conversation, is it's in ways it's almost harder because you, you even said it, and I'd love to know some of the things that you said that you initially rejected, because you're like, okay, wait a minute, you know, like it, it, it's almost like so many layers that they want to talk about because it is, yeah. it's our entire organism. And that's the thing we try to just drill it down to food and nutrition. But again, it's, it's our sleep. It's what, you know, it's our breathing. It's, you know, how far forward we're holding our heads. I mean, it's like, a, they have so many details. So you also started with somebody really informed, which in ways, you know, you could be more successful in the long run, but it would I think it would be harder to get started. I personally. Yeah. Yeah. The one that jumped out at me was like one time I remember him saying something like, 
well, when you really want to lose the weight, you will. And I'm like, bro, you don't think I want to lose this weight? Like, I've been working on losing this weight, you know, since it appeared. Uh, and he was kind of, you know, like, no, like unconsciously somewhere you hold some belief that, you know, there's some benefit or protection or there's some value or you're not ready to let go of it or, you know, and I'm sitting there doing like, you know, I'm like leaning against the wall with like, you know, in a squat position, holding on to something while he's telling me it. So it's just all sort of, also it was, um, it was, it was very, um, it wasn't how I think, I don't know. I've, I've never been, I've worked with Paul directly uh, some, and I've, I've, I've had exposure to other Czech practitioners and I would say each one's kind of different. This one was in New York city and it was in the basement of this building, no windows, very basement-y smell. And he was just blasting Rammstein. I'm not sure if you know the German like hard rock group and uh, he had a real thing for Rammstein. And so, I mean, this was an intense sort of dungeony place. And it was all about like, you thought you were going to go there to kind of kick your ass. But then all of a sudden after you kicked your ass and you're lying there just totally depleted, he started introducing me to these, you know, different concepts. And some of them were like seeds, you know, they were just like hit me. And like weeks, months later, all of a sudden I'd find myself, for example, getting a, a guided meditation for the first time. And like, that was something that I would put on my list of totally life-changing moments. I mean, from that moment on, mindfulness practice was just a total constant um, home base for me. Um, and so the thing that I rejected was that kind of concept. I remember thinking like, what do you mean? I like don't, I, all I want to do is lose this weight. And then, you know, eight, nine years later, just recently, two years ago, for the first time ever, my whole body just weight just vanished off of it uh, over a period of weeks. I mean, I put on several pounds of lean muscle and lost like five or 6% of body fat over the same period of time. Um, and basically nothing changed about my routine too much. Um, although I will give credit to our friend Joe Stefano because right at that moment, I went to a Runga retreat, um, which happened to be held right at on um, Spring Mountain where we live. So I heard about it and I just couldn't resist and everything clicked for me all at this right moment. But a week before that, finally, I understood those, that original comment about when you really want to lose the weight, you will because I was in a, um, a session with an NET practitioner, um, neuro-emotional technique for those who are unfamiliar. And um, it, in real short nutshell, uses muscle testing and a series of like uh, questions and suggestive emotions to uncover um, beliefs that you hold in your body, in your unconscious. Uh, and then if you find it, actually sourcing it back to an original event um, where you can kind of relive that moment and then clear the energy through some acupressure points and then come back to the present moment, re-muscle test yourself and identify that your body is no longer quote unquote failing or passing, you know, on that, on that emotion or belief. And so I had this crook in my neck and I woke up with it and I had otherwise been just spot on for weeks, you know, Diet, exercise, movement, relaxation, painting, breath work, family, business, everything was feeling great. And then I just wake up with this crick in my neck and it's sort of, I recognized it as a pattern. I recognized that, man, every time I'm feeling right on track, 
I have some sort of thing like my back feels out of alignment or my neck feels out of alignment. And it just kind of plateaus me just enough where I won't feel like working out that much for a week or two. I'll feel like lying around a lot, resting, working in and stuff like that. And it just plateaus me. And then I kind of start back on my workout program, but everything's been diminished in terms of where I was. And so I felt like that for years. And then, so I, I, I was at NET and I said, look, I think there's an emotional aspect to this neck thing. Cause you know, I just woke up like this and sure, maybe I slept on it funny, but I feel like it's pl- this whole plateau syndrome. And we went into it. I'm sharing a very personal story now, but we went into it and the emotion was not trusting my body. And the original event I went, since I know the practice, I originally went to an original event, but then he starts muscle testing. He's like zero to 10, zero to five to 10, you know, age 10. And I'm like, yep, I'm right there in the room. Like I know exactly where we are. And I was waiting before a football game in my girdle, which is like the pads underneath your football pants and above your underwear, but pretty much underwear, like otherwise naked. I'm in my girdle. I'm one of a handful of fat kids on the team and on the other team with the referees, our fathers, and the coaches of the team weighing us in to see if we're too heavy or not to play in the game that that day. Because, of course, at that age, kids grow faster and whatever. So you don't want like a six foot kid killing a four foot kid. But it was generally reserved for overweight kids. It typically wasn't this giant, you know, monster type kid. So the, you know, standing there. So the emotional reality of the 10 year old standing there um, wondering, like I was a starter and like one of the captains on the team. So like I felt like in a position of leadership and now I may or may not be able to play in this game uh, that I'm a leader on the team of. I'm going to let down my team. I'm going to let down my coaches. I'm going to let down my dad. So I was getting no sort of obviously holistic guidance on how to like have a healthy body at this time. So to me, it was a crapshoot. It was like, is my body going to make the weight this week? Like, did I do, is it going to be okay? And so I then from that moment, you know, going through my mind, lying there on the table, kind of clearing this, I can remember a whole arc of my life all the way through this major back injury in, in college. But this whole arc of my life of, my body not trust not trusting my body and these little injuries derailing my path and after that net experience which you know i just went back to my normal routine which interestingly enough did involve a runga experience the next week which sort of really reminded me so many things that i'd been working on for years but never seemed to click for me fully all of a sudden i mean my body shape just changed completely. I mean, I I lost a lot of body weight, 15 pounds on the scale, but I I was like gaining muscle during that period as well. So it was just from a a subconscious, you know, memory release, basically. What types of things clicked during that time during the Runga uh, session? What I mean by clicked is that I was already, I mean, I was 12 years into a deep, personal journey of trying to sort of arrange my entire life so that it was um, in line with, you know, my values around health and wellness. Um, So I had, uh, you know, for me, that means I was eating mostly vegetables grown on our own biodynamic farm and animals um, sourced from like pasture raised, humanely raised regenerative farms. Um, 
and pretty much nothing else. I wasn't really eating any grains or legumes for many years at this point. Oh, now I kind of am again and no processed food of any kind, definitely no gluten. If there was a grain, no sugar or dairy, except raw butter for like a decade almost. So I was eating an extremely clean diet. I was moving, working out in, working in all spectrums of movement. I was practicing meditation, you know, I had deep spiritual practices, I was expressing myself through art, I was professionally very engaged. So I felt like I was doing all these things. And yet, it wasn't clicking, even though I was doing the things that I felt like were required for it to click. And then, all of a sudden, after this experience, it just clicked on its own. I mean, I was had these things in place. And truly, the only thing like, holding it back was this like quivering internal unconscious belief that I wasn't even aware of uh, going back to age 10 in this case, uh, that when, when I was able to clear it, and this might sound, you know, woo-woo to some of your listeners, but when I was able to clear it, I didn't change anything else, but my body just started all of a sudden it was like it, the physical body just caught up to me instantly to where I felt like I should have already been based on my, my efforts in reality, but in my subconscious, I wasn't there. And it, and then that's why I said, it goes all the way back to when that trainer first told me, like, when you really are ready and want to lose it, you will. And then I was like, wow, he was right. It was something inside my head because I didn't change my routine at all. It's so hard though, because I think so much, so many of us have things that happen throughout our life that, that can you know, create a pattern or a trigger or something that lives within, within us that then informs so many of the other things we do that unless we have the opportunity to, you know, really do that excavation and, and life is busy and stressful and it's hard to get those moments. Um, and, and to realize, you know, can you go back to a time and sort of rework it and, and, and come, come through it? I think it's, um, it's really fortunate that, that you were able to do that, but you've also been doing a ton of work. I think the other thing that you said that feels really important to put more power into though, is that it's one thing when you meet certain, like if you're working with a Czech practitioner, there's a sense of like, oh, well, if I wanted to become stronger, I would do X. If I wanted to become leaner, I would do Y. If I needed to become more flexible, I could do this practice over here. And I feel like a lot of people feel beholden to the state that they're in and they don't even know how to begin to kind of unwind the thread and trust that they, they could understand, you know, their body or how to navigate out of it and things like that. So I think that, you know, what I really appreciate is the amount of effort because what you're reminding certainly myself and anyone listening is that, you know, it's, it's all it's always, it's always sort of just about paying attention and then, and being then willing to follow through and how about you've built an entire practice around it. But it's like, it's like, um, I'm on the downhill side of this climb. There's a mountain that you climb and then all of a sudden you're going down the front side of it. And what I mean by that is like, what sounds like effort is actually fun. So these are things I'm now passionate about and I do them for my enjoyment and better and general well-being but at first i just wanted to have more enjoyment and more well-being and like um i it, my present day self even recognizes that the the word want Im, Im, implies lack 
like I lack for nothing, I want for nothing. So I wouldn't have even approached it from wanting more of that. But I could understand the perspective of being like, I wish my life was somewhere different. And so my suggestion, uh, if I what I share with my friends and family who are like seeking, you know, advice on this is about making it be something that you just genuinely, truly enjoy and ideally outdoors. So it's like, if there's, you know, don't, don't do it in the traditional way that hasn't worked for you. Like, uh, don't make it about the diet. Don't make it about the workout routine. Like for my wife and I, uh, one of the first real discoveries was hiking, which to like a non-nature person sounds boring or scary or whatever, but it's as simple as walking. Everybody knows how to walk. But there's, 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 you know, peer reviewed scientific benefits to just going on that walk out in nature and the best conversations, the best sort of spiritual insights, the best, everything comes on hikes. I find Um, it's sort of the syndrome of when people have those good ideas in the shower, it's like you, it allows you to sort of transition your state of being and you're moving, you're breathing, you're sweating, you're detoxing, you're interacting with beings of nature, you're in the electromagnetic fields uh, and general sort of essence of these living beings. The whole thing is a fantastic first step, you know, just like go walking outside in nature Um, and, you know, buying ingredients and cooking them yourselves would be like another first step, like in a way that is fun for you. So like taking ownership over these tiny, tiny little things that can be fun, you know, making it fun and then getting the positive feedback from them. Once then it's like you can live off of the investment, you know, you've already paid the, 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 the principal and now you're going to start getting a return on it. You're going to start having more energy, more desire to do new things. It's going to be self-perpetuating. So just lean into the things that are really super fun, because when you're having fun, you're capable of learning and being open to new ideas in many more ways than when you're like more traditionally, you know, you're like, oh, I got to go beat up myself I gotta go beat up in the gym I gotta go kick my ass from the hard weekend it's it's about like that's the brilliance of the working out working in concept is that you might you working out for those who aren't familiar activities where you expend more energy than you generate and working in activities where you generate more energy than you expend so if you're in a state of general depletion there's an argument that maybe for three to six months, you shouldn't work out at all, but you should just work in, develop huge amount of energy reserves. And then believe me, you try working out on those energy reserves and you're going to have much more, you know, gains and benefit. Uh, So that's actually what I did for, and I've done it multiple times in the last 12 years. I've gone through a three to six month period where I exclusively worked in. And for those who struggle with weight gain or loss, that's actually generally actually been when I most accelerate my weight loss has been during periods of no working out exclusively working in Um, examples of that are lying on the floor and meditating slow walking in nature tai chi qigong truly restorative yoga a lot of yoga practices um, are working out Um, so like truly like yin restorative yoga and many more examples so those things actually accelerated my weight loss, which has been my personal, you know, issue over my life. Um, so that's what I'm sharing. On that. But uh, I counterintuitive, I would say. I was going to say, I, the, I, one of the first times I actually heard that was from Paul Check, probably 18 years ago. Um, 
you know, my husband is a very active person um, and he's also like very emotional, right? And so Paul would say, well, you know, your lower chakras, um, uh, they, they're more from your emotion, right? And so there, he goes on you, on Laird, they're getting taxed all the time. So if I'm taking you from there and then I'm bringing you into the weight room and then we're just gonna do legs and just hammer you down even more, He's like, you're not really considering the taxation that's on your body just being who you are as a person. Yeah. We're thinking, oh, wow, that's interesting. This idea of, like you say, working in and doing the things that when is it time to nurture ourselves towards this vitality? And it isn't about just punishing yourself and slogging it out in a gym um, towards good health and, and, and again, vitality, because I think that when you start to tap into that vitality can, you know, it's, it's sort of understanding, like you said, it's actually going to be more important for me to be really still and quiet and nurture myself right now. Okay. I've got the energy this time of the year or the season or whatever, and um, I can go for it a, a little bit more. And, and I think a lot of people don't go far enough into the questions about this, about these practices to even touch onto those ideas about sometimes less is more and, you know, the warmth of things, you know, the, the slowness of things, the nurturing of things is, is uh, equally or, or sometimes more powerful. So I really appreciate that, that point. So, so you go into this and how long are you, do you stay in New York and sort of think, and, you know, cause at some point this kind of living for most people would run into it's sort of a conflict living maybe in that. Yeah. Step one. Well, step one was recognizing that, okay, I'm at work all day long. And then I go to the basement of this guy's, you know, in this guy's gym and work, or sometimes at five, I do it before work, either one right before or right after. And then I'd go to the butcher shop and I'd go to the market and I'd get some food and then I'd go home and I'd cook for two hours. And then I'd write a blog post about it and take photos. And I was like super passionate about that stuff happening in just the last few hours of the day. And then I'd get to work and thankfully I, I'll share this one with him, but my old boss, I'm sure doesn't listen to my podcast, but he would hate to know that I would then spend most of my day looking up recipes. Cause like, there's actually a lot of downtime on the floor of the stock exchange to certain moments of like a lot of fast paced action. And then it could be hours where, you see people watching like Rocky or The Godfather on, at the next company over. So I would spend that time watching full length feature films. You know, I would spend that time uh, looking up recipes and um, researching about farming and growing practices. I was just becoming totally enthralled by it. Um, and so the first step was I recognized that there was this sort of way that I was really enjoying being and yet it was truncated into just a few hours in the day how could I possibly like these farmers in this book how could I possibly spend most of the day doing the things that I thought I really wanted to be doing um, and so that was like the desire to kind of change and I, I I was able to intellectualize it at the time by saying well if I do these practices like meditation and movement and whatever I can sort of buffer myself. I, I, I recognize that yes, the stock exchange and the general lifestyle was sort of a negative environment, like a negative stew that I was steeping in. But I was in this little bubble that I had created where I, my, my lifestyle and my, my new practices were sort of 
protecting me from. And pretty soonly I realized that like, if you're in a stew, you're in a stew. And so I just, I, I, I had to, you know, get out. I'm in the perfect mood to do this ad today because I just came from prepping dinner and I had a moment where it was like, okay, prep dinner, get it done on time or do something outside. And then I'm coming in and talking about Sakara. I've talked a lot about them. They're a nutrition company. They do focus on overall wellness. However, like everyone, they believe it starts with what you eat and incredibly they make that really easy so I, I know a lot of us we're trying to get a little more plant-based nutrition into our daily lives maybe you know we're trying to figure out how do I do that what tastes good maybe you know the days are getting longer things are starting to open up well Sakara is there for you they have you know you don't have to suffer through anything their menus are creative they're chef crafted ready to eat breakfasts lunches and dinners it changes weekly so you won't get bored I know I'm bored of my own cooking and they will deliver this not only do they have a great offer for you today but they will deliver this fresh to your door anywhere in the US. They have a lot of other incredible products too, is if you get going and you wanna support your health in other ways. So besides their delicious plant-based meals, they're offering daily wellness essentials like supplements and herbal teas. So you can support your nutrition um, and experience the transformative nutrition of plants with their best-selling metabolism super powder. It's made with cacao, so it boosts your energy, it can eliminate bloating, and a big one, minimize your sugar cravings. I'm always trying to figure out how do I get the sugar out of my diet, and especially wanting it. So right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A.com slash Gabby Reese, or just enter the code Gabby Reese, one word at checkout. That's Gabby Reese, G-A-B-B-Y-R-E-E-C-E. And again, you can get your 20% off your first order at Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A.com. We then sort of realized the vision for the project for the first time, which was we knew that it was going to be based on regenerative agriculture. Um, at the time, we probably would have said organic farming. Um, but uh, I, the, the manner in which we produce the food goes you know, far beyond the um, organic standards. And I'm not particularly an advocate for organic as a standard. Um, mm -hmm. But at the time, we would have said that. Can you maybe explain that? Because I think a lot of times people think, oh, farming, and there's only one, you know, one kind or two kinds, like you said, organic. I mean, and, and now, you know, you have the regenerative and now what's the, the I, it's funny, we've been talking a lot about sort of, um, you know, agroforestry where things are cooperating with one another. Yeah. Laird's been really interested in that a lot. So maybe how do you, as you're learning, get the vision on, oh, okay, I see the big difference. Um, and, and, and then what, it, what are the really specific differences between the organic and, re, and regenerative? Yeah, so um, I'm gonna answer that in one second to just finish that thought. And so like once we'd sort of decided that we'd be developing like a land-based project with this as the, the foundation, it was sort of known that we would be living there and that it would be integrated very much with our personal life. And so that's when we took on together um, uh, 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 an apprenticeship at a resort in Tennessee called Blackberry Farm, which has a farm, a large acreage, but it's a relationship to a resort. And the founder, uh, the son of the founder, but the proprietor at the time was a man named Sam Bell, who has since passed away. 
but he was a real sort of visionary icon in, in hospitality and, um, and even just sort of how hospitality can integrate to land stewardship and regenerative agriculture. And so for one year, I got to shadow him and work for amongst his entire executive team, as well as we both did that. And then we both worked in every department between the two of us. So like she was a concierge, I was a housekeeper, I was a breakfast cook, you know, she was in HR and accounting and I was, you know, um, in engineering and on the farm and in guest relations and carrying bags. And we basically did a very comprehensive top to bottom sort of year long apprenticeship there once we had the vision for our own hospitality project. And I approached him knowing, having researched him of his own experience as an apprentice. So in his own time, he gained knowledge through a series of apprenticeships. Um, and so I kind of resonated with him on that angle. I'm a big believer in apprenticeships as a, as a, you know, as a means for, for learning and um, expanding. And so what did you, what was natural? What did you, what, what was natural for you and what was, what was hard in the apprenticeship? But I mean, in, I in those departments, I mean, yeah. it was, it was just like, that's the, th like th my experience is that when you're doing something that you're extremely passionate about, it's like liquid. I mean, I could have transitioned to any of those departments and I just felt like I was like doing exactly what I needed to be doing. Like if I could carry that bag and like place it down in a way that was, you know, orderly and convenient for the person, if I could like mention something about the room as I was leaving or like improve their stay or in any way, I was just like, I was just like, uh, you know, cause I wasn't approaching it from the typical perspective of a bag handler. I was thinking like, I own this resort and this is like, the, how can we do this in a way that just, absolutely maximizes this guest experience and so i i just i learned so much about service there and like serving people and how to uh try to really please people because that's i mean you're on a short vacation it's not like real life you have a very short amount of time and trying to make them as happy as possible like if there's mess ups and slip ups you really regret it it's not like regular life where ah shit happens you know it's they're paying a lot of money to be there and you want everything to go perfect so it's almost like you're on uh, sh like acting. It's like you, you're, you're a fake person, but you're trying your best to be authentic at the same time. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's about creating an experience, basically. So how are all you, of that. Sorry, are, go. Sorry. No, I was going to say I'm thinking about it and, and, I, and I'm curious, like, how are the two of you getting along as a couple? Because you're busting your ass. Most like, I mean, you're tired. It's it's you're doing a lot of the input without the maybe the besides obviously there's learning but you're still it's a it's a lot out like a lot of people will not put this kind of effort and i understand that you have the vision and i i i appreciate that but i i am curious like how then do you then come together as a couple and nurture your relationship when you're both out there you know taking care of everybody, doing all these new and different things and learning and really giving a lot of output. How did you keep yourselves together? It's interesting. I don't, um, I, I, I don't, uh, I don't really think I have an answer to that question. Um, it just, it's like any challenges and there've been so many um, just seem to kind of push us to like a new lever level of like, you know, being there for each other. 
it's like I I just I don't know how I would it like definitely you know in the like somebody the other day described it to me um, that she's my muse and I understand that very much because it's like I feel like I could do anything as long as she's there and I would do anything um, to like sort of make things right for her um, and. Uh, I feel that she would do the same for me. And, you know, it's just a matter of doing the best we can. I mean, it's also just, it's so personal. Like, I think that, I don't think that having the business really changes the, for me, the difficulty of having a relationship and and raising a child. And in particular, in today's age with you know, an alternative ethos um, around a variety of things, meaning like we sort of have opted out of normal food supply chains and various things that are, you know, sound extreme almost. But for us, they're, 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 they're what we're passionate about. It comes very easily. And so it's all so personal. Um, and so that's just how we want to be. And the fact that we have a business, I mean, I just feel we get to do it from home. I mean, we get to be together uh, as much or as little as we we want, but there's not this sort of um, sort of classic tension that I remember from my childhood that, you know, my dad was working super long hours and, um, you know, would come home tired and had to commute far distances to, you know, to make his career work. And so the fact that most of the day is actually spent on, a piece of land and out in nature or you know many times in the office but still just the fact that home gets to be a centerpiece even of work conversations um i don't know i just i feel like both or all the various kind of ways you could make a living and raise a family they probably all have very complex challenges that come along with them and um, we feel like partners in the journey for sure. So I, I don't have an answer outside of the fact that I feel lucky to have a partner in the journey. Yeah, it's just unusual. I mean, and it's beautiful, but it is unusual when you can see couples that can individually sort of be heading in, in you know, in the same direction and I'm, I was just curious. Um, Otherwise, the whole house of cards will crumble. <laughs> like, 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 we're, there's, there's much more motivation towards working things in a positive direction. You know, our, our, we, we have a daughter, we have a business, we have a farm, we have nature. It seems like we're highly motivated to collaborate towards positive communication and solutions. And thankfully, we tend to. Yeah, well, but that just is also like on some level common sense because you see certain people in certain dynamics and you think that that's none of that behavior is going to end in a good place. And you, you know, it's just it's it is interesting. And and um, I just really appreciate that that you're able to do that, especially well, more like Sorry, when you, no, like when you have the challenges, right? Like it's shifting gears like, oh, OK, fire damage. Now you have the stress of this. And, you, you know, it's like, and you're both going through, it's just, it's a, it's a bit of. It. It's, it's very, very challenging. The odd thing is the amount of sort of silver linings that have been presented with the challenges. I mean, almost in lockstep, it's sort of like, you know, weird. 
Um, so like, uh, it's, it's hard to, I, I'm, I'm not a big believer in like labeling things as good or bad in the immediate sense. So I, I don't, I'm just trying to go with the flow, to be honest, um, and pivot in the direction of the flow. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I get it. It's just not many people, not many people really can do it. So I, I really, I really, I really appreciate that. So I was, um, Paul connected me, us, and you sent me the most beautiful skin serum that I used. And I, I'm very particular, like every female on the planet, um, about what I put on my skin. And I mean, there's a lot of care that goes into this product. And you said it because I, I read all the literature and it was like, you know, anyone could really probably make this at home. Yeah, technically, you, I mean, easy. You said that in your own literature. So <laughs> maybe just share with I, I do enjoy teaching people too. I mean, how to make stuff like this. I mean, do I, can you could grow grapes in your backyard and crush it into wine too, but it's like, does somebody make a better wine out there? Probably. So yeah, you could make it, but we're doing it at a particular quality level that I think people are reacting to as well. But the, the general gist of how we make it, um, first, you know, if, if you think time allows, kind of is answered by a question which we didn't answer, which is like, how are farming styles different? So that, because we grow our own ingredients. And so the manner in which we grow them is part of the answer to that question. And basically 1% of US farmland is certified organic. That's obviously a small percentage, but there's a lot of US farmland. So maybe you're saying, but Jared, that's millions of acres of farmland. And that's also true. But the thing is, is that as organic grew in popularity from the 40s, 50s, 60s, really kind of taking off in the 70s, thanks to the hippies, um, basically it then got co-opted. So by the time it gets codified into USDA certified organic in the early 90s, it's now just a list of things to spray or not spray on the farm. It's lost the ethos that was so popular in the 70s around, this is the beginning of the sustainability movement, which they would have called appropriate technologies like solar or composting toilets. This is the beginning of you know, the biological agroforestry movements and like some universities in particular in California that are focusing on it. This is the beginning of like hippie communes and permaculture communes that are, you know, people are living off the land off of these philosophies. And it had a deep ethos around soil health, biodiversity, farm worker health, and you know, nutrient density and quality so that the end consumer was actually getting something worthwhile. Because it has been a complete downward slope from World War I until present day in terms of the quality of food that our food system produces. And so as the food system, which is that huge, you know, all, the 99%, right? And, and I'm about to argue that it's more because as that 99% looked towards organic and saw, whoa, look at them, they got a couple billion in sales this year. Now they codify it, they make it into the USDA organic, they strip it down to the bare minimum, they eliminate the broader ethos. And we now have industrial monoculture organic, which is arguably maybe 99% of that 1%. It's at least 80%, but it might be as high as 99%. And so there's almost no sort of mom and pop 
organic farms. I mean, of course, everyone knows of them, but statistically speaking, on the whole, there's almost zero of them across the country at this point. And that's what you're imagining when you think of the word organic. So you go to the grocery store and you think, I want to eat healthy. I want to get the best thing. I'm going to get organic because I've heard that's the best, right? If you're coming from this industrial system, which let's say 90 some odd percent of it is, then it's better in certain ways because there were less noxious chemicals used to grow it. But those types of systems don't produce nutrient dense foods of high quality because foods of high quality are coming from systems that are not exactly the wild, but at least more sort of in line with natural rhythms. And the wild is where you find the most nutrient dense foods, the superfoods, right? So those foods, they're growing all on their own in symbiosis with plant communities that they've co-evolved with, interacting with insects and birds in various ways, including bacteria and fungi, the atmosphere, the water, the sun, this whole sort of symphonic action. And there's no irrigation or manipulation. And so they, there's no chemicals, there's no growth hormones. So they have to struggle intensely to develop you know, their fruits and leaves and flowers and stuff. And that intense struggle uh, of having to fight off all the insects and like turn rocks into essential oils and all the various things that they do is why they're so beneficial to us because they had to go through that. So plants that are grown in huge monocultures where the soil is treated as dirt and it's just basically a lifeless substrate where you pluck cash crops into that are kind of like fed IVs, for lack of a better word, of a, a few macro nutrients that are synthetically produced through huge fossil fuel and energy expenditures. Um, when you do that, those plants don't have to struggle in that same way. They've figured out how to make them grow big and fast and strong and look like food. And yet, that lack of struggle, that lack of relationship with the soil and the fungus and the bacteria and all the other critters that are just not there. They're not there because the chemicals kill them. And so when you, that's the ecosystem, the whole ecosystem of the farm is what's producing, is what's healthy. And so if you have a healthy system, then anything that grows within it grows at the, at, you know, all boats rise with the high tide. So it's like everything growing in that system becomes of a similar quality. And so the organic system, you know, there's organic pesticides, organic herbicides, organic fungicides, organic rodenticides, um, and organic fertilizers. And just because it says organic in the front, the important part is the side at the end. That thing wants to kill something. And so that methodology of industrial agriculture has now been sort of transposed onto organic agriculture. So our approach, which falls under the bucket of specifically biodynamic agriculture, which under a larger umbrella, you might call regenerative agriculture or uh, various other you know, names that people are tossing around. And so the goal of truly regenerative systems to use that umbrella term is to support all levels of life. The more life, the better, because the more biodiversity, the more soil nutrients and soil life, the more general resiliency of the system, the more insects and predator insects and you know, reptiles and gophers and moles and bulls and birds and owls, and the more of everything. And that's the check and balance that kind of keeps the system whole. And that's just much more representative of what you find in nature is that there's sort of a system working. And so regenerative farms are not the same as nature. And yet they're trying their best to, um, 
to learn from the wisdom of nature, to act in accordance with the rhythms of nature and sort of go with the flow. Because when you work outside of the flow, you, then you're using the chemicals and the straight lines and the machines and the tractors, and you're overcoming so much. Like the, the fertilizers for the chemical industry, not the organic industry, this would be banned in organics, but the chemical fertilizers are the same things that they use to make gunpowder and TNT and dynamite. So that's interesting to me because it's like, whatever's going on, first of all, it's obviously extremely violent and associations are you know, very violent, but what's, whatever's going on in the soil to make things pop out of their seeds and grow into plants, it's so combustive and intense that they have to replace it with dynamite basically. So it's like, to me, that means like, wow, let's have some tense reverence for the magic and awe of this like divine gift. Like let's interfere with it as little as possible. And so those are the kind of things you find on, in our case, a biodynamic farm. So we don't purchase any chemicals, including, or, and everything I'm about to say is true for a lot of biodynamic farms and some of it is, you know, depends, but we don't buy any chemicals, including organic ones. Um, we produce, we don't actually produce much for fertility and growth so much as sort of systemic health and immunity. And so we make um, a variety of homeopathic medicines out of things that we grow or forage in the wild. They're generally fermented underground and either added to the compost pile, which then of course gets added to the field, or they're mixed with rainwater and sprayed on either the soil or onto the crops and the atmosphere around the crops. And that with the addition of the compost that I already mentioned is the extent of sort of the health protocols for the farm. In addition to the general sense of biodiversity and all the other things I mentioned, um, once you have that going, we also then don't disturb it much. So we don't do what is called tilling. And if we do, we do it as little as possible and as minimally as possible. So we don't even own a tractor to give you an example of how minimally we till. We have no tractor in the farm at all. Uh, the work is generally done by hand. And then we have this walk behind little thing that um, technically is a tiller. But the gist of it is, is that on typical farms, even organic ones, every single time a crop is turned over, the whole field is tilled with this huge machine that basically uplifts and, and sort of turns over and fluffs and like Vitamixes the soil into this fluffy powder. And so that certainly destroys a lot of the web of life that has sort of taken hold. And some of these things like fungi or whatever, and they, they probably regenerate and start growing and come back to life pretty effectively. Even worms, right, can be like cut up and regenerate. But uh, the, the approach on our farm is to do that as little as possible. So it's to grow as many things as possible to support biodiversity and to have those things decompose down to the ground, like you see forest litter decomposing down to the ground and then leaving the ground covered with those, those either dead and decomposing things or living growing things. And basically to use the homeopathic medicines as needed. And so 0.002% of US farmland is certified biodynamic. It's, it's zero, you know, for lack of a better word. And the overwhelming majority of that farmland is actually dedicated to, to a single crop, which is wine grapes. It's, it's most popular in wine. So there's very few farms and we're starting to learn more and more of them because it's, we're, you know, it's, it's inspiring to 
to meet other biodynamic farms that are growing a large diversity of things. But there's, there's very few places where people are growing this diversity of medicinal and edible plants uh, in this exact way, which the whole goal, it, you know, if I didn't describe everything I just described, but I just said why we're trying to do it, it's, there's a real purity to that because even in organics, um, like organic fertilizer is made from factory farmed animals, almost exclusively from non-organic origins. And so that's the most common fertilizer source, blood meal, bone meal, feather meal. And you can't get them from like Joe's pasture-raised chicken shack around the corner. He doesn't have enough feathers. Those come from the industrial factory farming system. And they somehow magically get transformed into an organic certified product. And that is a very clever and resourceful use of a waste stream that exists in this country. The waste stream shouldn't exist. So we're sort of solving the wrong problem. Like animals shouldn't be raised in that way. And yet they are. So it's resourceful and it's great and it's affordable and it's certified organic, which allows people to use it on organic farms. On our farm, the compost is made out of grass-fed cow manure. So these are cows who are living outside, expressing their natural tendencies, living the life as they're supposed to. And somebody's picking up the poop behind them, which is just digested grass. So you know, vegans and people who care about cruelty-free, et cetera, might really be interested in biodynamics because they're probably not aware that organic is uh, sourcing uh, fertilizer in this way. And, you know, there's probably a lot of arguments why it's great that they are, but I'm just saying from like an optimizing your own health and well-being, or even, you know, a lot of people make choices about being vegan that relate to animal welfare to begin with. So, we don't support them for that exact, we don't support factory farming at all, including through the purchase of fertilizers, which might be one of their highest grossing products for all I know, more than meat even. Um, so there's a lot of organic farms that choose to go beyond the bare minimum and probably source grass-fed cow manure and make their own compost. And there's, have all sorts of regenerative practices and they're called organic because it's a very common label, right? And so I'm not saying that organic farms are wholesale bad. I'm just saying that the industry has uh, sort of used the name to achieve the bare minimum. And so some of the organic out there is not particularly impressive in terms of its treatment of the land, the crops themselves, the local wildlife, watersheds, the farm workers, or the end user, the eater, because you're getting uh, a less quality product. And so like the, the, the last thing I'll say on that is that there's, there's a study that I've been pointing people towards um, called the Real Food Campaign, and they've been testing the nutrient density of um, various crops, 21 or so they test now. And I've been talking with one of the founders about testing some of our more medicinal plants, because right now they're testing like spinach and carrots and tomatoes, like more standard crops. But basically, they took 600 samples of carrots from across the country grown in various ways, you know, grocery store, farmer's market, wherever. And they wanted to test the amount of polyphenols present in the carrot. The lowest performing carrot to the highest performing carrot. Um, just, you know, your audio, I think it's muted, but I'd be curious to tell you, I'd be curious to hear your answer. What do you think the percentage variance different is between the worst performing carrot, it had X percent polyphenols, I mean, it had X polyphenols and this guy had Y polyphenols, which is how much percent more? Right. Uh, 
9% more. 9%. That's one of the lowest guesses I've ever gotten. Just, well, I was just, thinking, just a fun fact. I was just thinking maybe showing that if it's that how close it maybe really is if we're not. I know it's no, it's a, it's a logical guess because you're thinking like, how different if, could if, these carrots, how many more polyphenols could you possibly? Growing, if you're growing the carrot and then other carrots, okay, I'll say 93% um, difference. If you say to me all the organic carrots and then the rest of everybody else, just a few percentages. Right, so there's, there's, they tested from wherever. So there were some biodynamic participants. There were like in various crops, there were hydroponic participants. There's literally a every kind of farming style you could imagine because there was 600 different you know, farms that they selected from. The answer, 20,000% variance. What? There's a difference of the amount of polyphenols present in the worst performing carrot. You'd have to eat 200 of them to equal the amount of polyphenols in one carrot. And with spinach, it was 35,000% for antioxidants. It was 350 pieces of spinach to equal the antioxidants present in one. So yes, you can make this product with those ingredients, right? But there's potentially tens of thousands of percent more of what you're seeking out of that product because of the manner in which we grew it. Well, don't you find when you eat stuff that is so nutrient dense, you just don't need that much of it. You eat that's, it, you go. That's a fact, yeah. I'm good. 350 pieces of lettuce less. Let's talk about, wait, hold up your serum. And I just wanna, cause I want people to know that this is available um, for them because I'm always, you know, I like nice things. And so, so share. I have, a, I have, I have this is the bottle that I'm currently using. So, it's, so it's, share, not, it's not a full bottle. Share with people where they can find and get a hold of it. So the serum, First of all, we love direct communication and people are more than welcome to reach out to us at love at beherefarm.com. And we do have deep relationships with a lot of our clients and we spend a lot of time talking offline about how they can get the most out of things. And so every client, every new, every person who purchases a product gets an invitation to email me at that email and to set up a Zoom and to have a free video consultation and even our guided facial relaxation, if that's something they're interested in. And we do a bunch of those and they're awesome. Um, but besides emailing me and geeking out on this stuff, it's first launched on sunpotion.com. And they're one of our favorite brands and they have an incredible product line. And we're the only product that I'm aware of currently that they're selling and they typically don't sell other people's products. But their founder, Scott, um, is passionate about our farm and our brand and we've become good friends. and. He considers it a big vote of their confidence that he's doing this. And so we've been, we launched there in October. That was the first time that anyone was ever able to buy it besides like in-person from us at pop-ups and stuff like that in, in Napa, Sonoma area. Now we've also launched um, on catbeauty.com, which is um, an amazing online curator of clean beauty and also like uh, wholesome food products and just sort of uh, I don't know, I've been looking to them for years as like an industry leader in terms of uh, offering products of high quality and true, like the word clean gets thrown around a lot. And like, organic. yeah, organic, regenerative, all these words, they mean nothing, right? So to find a place 
like Cat Beauty, if you go to their website and you click on their brands, which we're now one of them, there's 40 or 50 max brands that are on there and they're exceptionally well curated. It's like, you can't go wrong on there. Um, and uh, just similar sort of ethos um, in terms of toxicity and cleanliness and purity. But, you know, when you look at clean beauty products in general, you notice that most of them aren't certified organic. I mean, and if they were, they would still be facing a lot of the problems that we just discussed. But there's a lot of lab-derived ingredients that can't be certified organic. And that's one of the main reasons, probably. And that they're the same type of ingredients you see in like healthy food products, like xanthan gum and stuff like that being the most benign of the list. But there's, there's thousands, there's thousands of chemicals. I think actually 1,300 that the EU has banned from cosmetics. And I think there's 11 in the United States that have been banned from cosmetics. So it's like the wild west out there. And, um, you know, sourcing something like what we're offering in this serum is a level of purity that would be almost impossible statistically based on what I just described to match. And then a level of potency, similarly so. So that, what more could you want other than to know that it's as potent as possible and as absent as toxicity as you could imagine? I mean, those are the two things that we want out of our food and like all products generally, we don't really differentiate um, what we're putting on our skin with what we're putting into our mouths. In fact, they're all edible, actually. All the ingredients in this product are things that could have been in your salad today. I, I, uh, yeah, I, I've, I've been using it. I've been using it, I don't know, about three and a half months now. I, uh, and my whole thing is, would I eat it? That's what I usually say when I go to put things on my skin. Would I, could I, would I eat that? Because yeah. that's really where it's going. I, you know, when you hear about the, you know, the true, when you talk about the real, ethos around farming do do you think do you think we can we can a greater portion of people are going to be able to pull it off or do you think it's you know the amount of patience and the cost and things that it is do you feel are you seeing internally because you're closer to this information than certainly someone like me is do you feel that there is sort of better strides going back to doing the way that it's supposed to be done or does it does it is it at times like okay well this is just going to be for a few places are going to do it and a few people are going to have access to it i mean from the six like i just think the implications are so broad that it's sort of like it's like you know devastating you know nightmare of an outcome or we really did it. We really figured it out. We all came together. We started doing it, you know, in a way that makes sense. But on the ground, what's happening around the world is pretty much like um, a nightmare. Like, the, you know, on a governmental and sort of like philanthropic level, um, they from the 60s till now have been just piling money into industrial agriculture and the, the, uh, to the benefit of like, at this point, just a handful of companies and, and like, you know, organizations and to the detriment of just so much um, uh, nat natural wealth. What can, what, can we, what can we do? Because my, my whole thing is, is that I understand, you know, that part of it, but I do think that when people hear things like this, they do want to do something besides how they buy. Yeah. No, absolutely. Like, I, but what, where can they go? What can they do? 
Um, and even like, okay, if you go to a farmer's market, let's talk about that. Some people go, well, yeah. I go to the farmer's market twice a week. Like I go to the Tuesday one and I go to the Saturday one. Does that make a difference or is that like monocropped, you know? No, of course. Well, it depends on the farmer's market too. It's like, and that's the interesting thing is that every single farm is different. So it's, there's no rule book on farming. You know what I mean? So that's the, 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 it all comes down to actually connecting to some of these farms and finding one that you really resonate with and then supporting them, joining their CSA, getting a, you know, getting some freezer space at, like in your garage or in the in a corner of your freezer and buying some larger, you know, volumes of meat, like a couple times a year, if you're a meat eater, like just supporting these local farms and connecting directly, that's always the answer. And then the next best thing is, you know, brands that have done that on your behalf. So there are some like Sun Potion is a good example. They source best in class ingredients from around the world and they're offering like 40 or 50 different adaptogenic and herbal tonic products. Laird Superfoods, I'm, you know, I'm not in the meetings with you guys, but it seems to be to me to be another example. Like the fact that your guys' cookie or brownie mix is featuring zucchini, I believe, as opposed to, you know, any of the forms of sugar that you could name is an example of, you know, finding a brand that's making good decisions on your behalf, sort of outsourcing that decision-making to them. But if you're just walking around the grocery store or the farmer's market sort of indiscriminately, I mean, at this point, that's kind of on you because I'm providing you with this information. And so now you're empowered with the information. Now you have to actually apply the lens of mindfulness to your decision-making process so that literally moment by moment on individual basis of decision-making, you're reviewing the things that are going into your shopping cart and into your kitchen and that you're cooking, or, I mean, it gets even more complicated if you're eating out all the time, which is common too, because you got to ask a lot more questions to stay on top of this, but it's about truly developing a relationship with what's going into your body and how that works for you um, and, and not allowing it to overwhelm you. Like it, it's the same answer for me on the having fun thing. It's like this, it's fun for me at this point to go drive two hours to some weird farm to pick up some something and or to spend half a day like churning our own butter for some friends coming over or something like that. Like these are things that are fun for me. So it's about finding what's fun for you and how to sort of lean into that as it relates to this topic more generally. You got to make it personal. But your question to me was like, what's the future? How are we going to do it? But the, and what are people going to do? But the answer is just totally different on the systemic level and then the individual level. Like systemically, uh, we need billions of dollars of investment into regenerative ag. And like there needs to be private individuals and governments and everybody needs to band together and get that number from, you know, 0% up to five, 10, 25%. Like, interestingly, there's some places that are doing better, like 10% of all the biodynamic farmland in the world is in Germany. It's a pretty interesting stat. What, what about them growing the, their thing in the stores? I saw uh, that one company that, and I, I feel like I, it can't possibly be biodynamic though, because it doesn't consider the whole environment, but they actually will take the plants and put them in the store. And so not only do they have the food that's available, but when the patrons go to the market, they actually get to experience and see the, the vegetables growing yeah. and take those. And then they go in and re 
replenish that. I did think that was interesting because if people were living in cities and they couldn't go to the farm and connect to how their food was being grown, yeah. they, they saw it grow. So it, quick tangent in the cities, like I highly recommend joining a CSA because you can go to the farmer's markets, but you know, maybe, you know, you're not available this week or whatever, but if you join a CSA, you have this box of weird vegetables that you didn't even choose showing up to your house every week. It immediately engages you because you don't want to waste it into how can I, you got to look up a recipe on kohlrabi. You've never even heard of kohlrabi. First, you had to figure out which one on the list kohlrabi even was, you know, and then you had to cook it for your family. So CSA is, is one of the slippery slopes that I engaged in that, that led me to, you know, owning a farm. Um, but the uh, thing about hydroponic systems and indoor systems in general, they're very good for a variety of the reasons that you just described. So maybe they definitely have a place in like consumer education and like maybe even in feeding the million of people. Like, I don't know. I'm not, a, I'm not like, I can't just solve all the world's food system problems. But what is starting to become known is that hydroponic systems produce nutri nutrient inferior products. So they're not as nutrient dense. And in the real food campaign study, I don't have it in front of me, but I believe generally speaking, hydroponics performs the worst out of all the food systems tested, potentially even worse than chemically grown, soil grown foods. I have to confirm that, but if not that, then it's way definitely near the bottom. And um, so, yeah, that like, we were talking about earlier, superfoods, they're the most dense, right? And then truly regenerative, holistic systems, they're working with natural systems. They're also really nutrient dense, right? So then you got to go all the way down the ladder until you say, in hydroponics, you know, we've figured it out, right? We got these LED lights, we rip open this packet, we pour in this salt and this powder, and that's what these foods need to grow. Uh, damn the viruses, damn the bacteria, damn the fungi, you know, damn the entire ecosystem. We've got it going on right here in this PVC pipe and with this sack of powder. I mean, it's, it makes sense to me that it would end up with a sort of nutrient void product. Um, and that's kind of like how I view chemically grown food in general. So that's another shift we could make is they call it conventional food or organic or regenerative food is extremely non-conventional. This food was developed based on mechanisms of warfare, World War I, II, and Vietnam. Right. Weapons of warfare would then immediately get pivoted into the food system. The insecticides that were used in the gas chambers of World War II are the insecticides that are used in chemical agriculture. The DDT from Vietnam was used aggressively around the world in agriculture and people's homes. And so it's like they create these needs through war and then immediately pivot those factories into the food system in a way that I can't even comprehend. But wasn't it, I heard, and I'm not going to get on the thing about Monsanto because it's not, it's not necessary, but wasn't it that they were doing like gunpowder or something? And so then it turned, then they became, it became fertilizer and then, you know, everything else or something to your point, but the, 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 the book that's out that might be, you know, I, I haven't fact checked it, but Vandana Shiva's new book, um, it might be called One World, One... Vandana Shiva's newest book uh, chronicles this uh, at incredible detail. Um, so the whole history of Monsanto Bayer and the pharmaceutical industry's involvement in agriculture and the future of it 
which is what I was alluding to earlier, which they're calling smart ag, which is basically the integration of technology, GPS, drones, you know, full on robots and, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Basically no human beings, like we do everything by hand. We don't own equipment in our lab other than a, a, a cold press for, for pressing these. And we don't artificially heat or pressurize the serum at any time. These flowers are placed into olive oil, which is placed into a glass jar, which is placed into a glass hut in the center of our farm. At that point, we do nothing for one complete moon cycle. The only force of action that's applied to the serum at any time is the pulsing rhythm of daytime and nighttime. That is what unwinds the plant's healing properties into the oil. We then cold press it by hand, blend it and bottle it. And um, so even if you look at sparkling water, Consumer Reports is testing sparkling waters through the roof on PFSAs, the forever chemicals. So the simple process of getting water into a bottle is enough to adulterate even a single ingredient product as simple as water. So when you look at processed foods, processed cosmetics, it's not just the ingredients on the list you have to watch out for. It's the ingredients that don't get mentioned. Yeah. Fragrance is a word that contains thousands of carcinogenic things behind it. Um, same with you know food colorings and all this stuff. So it's like you got to either be a scientist and a detective or you start not eating and putting those things on your body that have names that you don't understand. And especially ones that have catch-all names like fragrance or you know, natural flavor. These are things that are banned in other countries. Natural flavorings, that's what I love. And fragrances, you're like, oh, that's the, that's the mystery of, you know. So <laughs> those things they find in mother's breast milk yeah. and in baby's umbilical cords. These things are pervasive uh, in all humans at this point. And many of them are carcinogenic and known to be so. So it's like um, sourcing nutrient-dense foods of clean origins is something that I'm passionate about for a variety of reasons. And I, I believe one of them is like necessity and for health and well-being. But I've also taken it on as something that since it brings so much joy and goodness into my life, I mean, it's just, I, I would, it's like, I used to drive 15 hours to catch a music festival. I would easily spend a weekend going to, you know, see an interesting artisan producer within a few hours of my region and spending the night there, sourcing up on ingredients, coming home and having that in my life. So it's about prioritizing. Um, CSA is a super economical way to get this type of food into your life. Is there any, is there anyone making like cheese that they mail that you really love? Is there someone group or a particular? Uh, yeah, that's a good, that's a good, that's a good question. I'm going to have to uh, circle back on that. And I have no relationship to this, um, to this company, nor do I know the founder, but there's a nut cheese company. Uh, I think Sri Mundi or something like that, that has a mail order, uh, very artisanal looking, beautiful nut cheese company. But I know I, I used to kind of roll my eyes at like, I was like, oh yeah, the vegans and the vegetarians with their fake cheese, you know, like whatever. And there's been a couple of nut cheeses that I was incredibly surprised on how beautiful and elegant it tasted and, and actually really satisfying. Well, because you got that fat, so it was really great. So listen, Jared, I could go on and on. Um, I do want to ask you one question because you are a dad. And 
you know, what you're doing is I know it's, it, it appears to be a real natural calling to you and make a lot of sense because it does. And, and the level of, of determination to do what you're doing um, is it's, it's real. Like it, people don't, I think it's, you know, it's like set on, this is the right way to do it. So there's no other way to do it, which I, I understand when that's that realization, but you as, you as a father, um, you know, it's, it's like this idea of like, what's going to be for our kids. Cause I think about that, you know, I have three daughters. They're a lot older than your, your daughter, but it's just this whole, I think we like, what are we leaving and doing for them? So when you had your, when you had your daughter, how old is your daughter now? Six. Is, did it, did it ramp up for you or, um, you know, what was, what was that transition into being a dad for you? Because you're already, it's, you know, sort of, you know, you're doing apprenticeships in, in farms in, in, in Tennessee and, and I mean, in Georgia, it's like, you yeah, know, you have, I mean, what was that like for you? I think that like birthing this project felt like a real sort of birthing of a being um, and birthing the farm as a part of that in particular. And so it's like Kaya came in as sort of just a totally natural extension. Like there's a lot of things growing on our farm. The fact that a baby grew made total sense. And it just like, the week she was born was the same week. This is not planned. She came several weeks early than her due date. But the week she was born, uh, we planted all 100 fruit trees that exist on our farm. Um, so it's like she was coming into being just sort of as this project was coming into being. And she just sort of like is our best crop, I would say. <laughs> is it what I, obviously you've learned so many lessons and, and being in nature and farming and being in those cycles teaches you so much. Is there something that surprises you that you've learned about by being a parent? Hmm. After like yesterday, for example, um, we woke up and we went down to the Santa Monica Pier and we rode some rides and uh, went out for lunch, came home, took a bath, read some stories, went to bed. Sounds like just a genuinely awesome, fun day. And she was a total peach, you know, like as sweet as can be. We never had more fun. And at bedtime, I was just sitting there and like, I could not believe my level of exhaustion from just the, the day-to-day connection with a little person and like giving them yourself like that. Just the energy sort of pour and um, the level of, tiredness that sometimes arises from what seems like totally normal things that billions of people have done for millennia but somehow I think I was surprised that sort of the level of um, just energy and focus required to sort of raise her in the way that we want to raise her which she's up until this year she had never been introduced to a screen in her whole life so she had never watched a single thing and so I mean, that's hundreds of hours of time that I would have watched uh, TV as a child. In fact, I had like burned through my VHS of Spaceballs by age six, Mel Brooks's Spaceballs. So I was ag- aggressively uh, ahead of the, the, the movie watching curve. Um, you, so that's what you, comes to me. How do you and your wife 
manage, because you're in business, so you're on screens of some sorts to communicate with humans. How are you managing keeping that tucked out until right now um, with, with your daughter? Because it's... She kind of liked it. I mean, like, she knew that screens, like, she knew that, like, her the neighbor kid plays video games all day and that it looks pretty boring and he's always inside. And like that she's out in the farm all day. So as, as, as she was talking and communicating, like she kind of got the gist that screens weren't for little people. And she would actually come into the room if like TV was on and she'd be like, turn it off, please. Like, you know, she was kind of on, on board with it. Um, And we also, um, we have what we call her story box, which is a, uh, not an iPhone, an iPod. We have an iPod that just has, we deleted everything except audible and one or two other storytelling apps. And so she's listened to probably thousands of hours of stories um, uh, since she was a kid. And like, she's got a crazy vocabulary and she loves the stories. Just like you can kind of zonk out in front of a TV for hours. She could just listen to these stories for hours. Like she's never had anything on an airplane other than just like listening to five hours of stories and like playing with a ball of yarn. So her imaginatory capabilities it's sort of a Waldorf premise about it's all about them being able to form their inner pictures and sort of outsourcing that to a screen is actually outer pictures that are then rushing in at you and they're supposed to be developing their imaginatory capacity which is inner pictures so that they can form their and perceive their outer world Um, so we found that to be nourishing and good for our family and so we took that approach after the fires we sort of just had like a stress break, I would say. And we were like, you know what? Seems like a good time for movies to be introduced. And we as a family went to a drive-in to see Home Alone, Elf, and The Nightmare Before Christmas, like three weekends in a row. And that kind of kick-started our movie-watching spree, which now we we might watch one once a week even. They're kind of in our life now. I think it's, you know what I appreciate about your, your, your daughter's group? Because I always say my kids are the experiment you know, my oldest is 25 and my youngest is 13, but that there's sort of a group that the parents, we didn't know what was happening and what was coming down the pipe. And we're like, what, and what are they looking at? You know, and it was sort of like our kids group is the, they're the experiment, (laughs) but it's like, you guys are actually forewarned a little more. And even saying the suggestion about using the audible and stuff, I feel like your group is going to get it better and more right on where to implement and put the screens um, I think you're, you will have a better way of using it as a tool. You know, I have a friend, yeah. you know, he's 31 and he's like, it's a tool. It's a tool. I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> she asks me, Kaya asks me all the time, like, you know, but you're on your phone. And I'll say, I'm on my phone for work. You we're not at home. Yeah. I have to communicate with people. This yeah. is how I do my work. Yeah. And she, you know, she gets that too. I mean, at least she claims to she's six when she's 12 she's going to hand it to you but that'll be another time i'll talk to you then i mean my goal in sort of like framing her life in this way is that we don't do these things as restrictions we do them because we actually enjoy them because they're really good for you so she's either going to rebel and become you know total opposite or she's going to just start making her own wise decisions which i imagine is the path she's on she seems to be um you know like a cow out to pasture, it knows exactly what grass to eat for you know nutrition. It knows exactly where to go. She's been raised in this way. When you present her with options, she doesn't look at candy as food. You know what I mean? She goes right towards the fresh fruit, right towards the you know the things that are nutrient dense and good for you because that's what she knows. 
And she's probably going to actually recognize um, even that in people, like the vibration of like, oh, that I, I could move towards that person. Maybe I won't. I think kids that grow up in nature and are connected to that inner whole, not only picture, but voice, I think usually have that in spades. So that's the one thing I would leave people with to feel empowered is to like get in out in nature and then get their kids out in nature. And then if possible, grow a little food, even in a pot on your patio, like rosemary, like in a pot on your patio. That's how I started rosemary in a pot in New York city. And so it's like just touching this process and just engaging yourself in the natural flow of life and, and nature just a little bit, it's enough, you know, that's the trend, that's the lock and key for me was just getting that taste of it. And then it was all positive feedback loop kind of from there. Like it was, it fed itself just beautifully. Well, I really appreciate what you're doing, what you and your family are doing. And um, I'll put everything in the show notes. And uh, I just, um, and I, and I love your, your serum. I'll be honest. I, I, Thank uh, you. I really do. I'm, you know, listen, <laughs> do you know anything about cauliflower mushroom before we get off? Cauliflower mushroom? No. Well, like, what do you mean by that? There's something called the cauliflower mushroom and I keep trying to f find out more. It's sort of new and they say it's pretty good for the skin. So I don't know. Interesting. No, I'm not familiar. But if any of your listeners are interested in checking it out, Sun Potion uh, was kind enough to offer, uh, you know, I suppose... I as well, but on Sun Potion's website, uh, we're offering a 10% discount for your listeners and we could just do code Gabby, okay. all lowercase. And right. so people are more than welcome if they're interested. And also to connect with me, like I said, we love connecting and if people want to ask questions about it, no problem. Careful, be careful. <laughs> you know, it hasn't been a problem so far. Let's put it that way. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind-the-scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.